Thank you for listening to the Black Sheep Rising podcast. Listener discretion is advised. This podcast does deal with sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse, and past trauma. The purpose of this podcast is to help each other grow and to share my story. The experiences I share are my own and not shared with an intent of harming or hurting anyone. The purpose of this podcast is to grow emotionally and to leave past trauma where it belongs in the past. Thank you for listening and enjoy the podcast. In the days of my youth, I was told what it means to be a man. I start this episode off singing because, quite frankly, I uh, would never have done that in front of a human being for a very long time. I, uh, for one reason or another, was made to feel stupid about my singing skills, and as a young boy, that stuck with me, and for only a few times in my entire life have I ever sang for anybody. And so I start off today because I am curious. I've, I've been thinking about this a lot. I've had the discussion with people here recently, and uh, the universe has a way of kind of steering you into things. And I've certainly been pushed that way. So what does it mean to be a man? I've thought about this, like I said, a lot. I can think of a lot of times in my youth when those concepts were being formed in me by different people. Obviously, there were some really terrible people in my past. My own father wasn't particularly interested in me until my early teenage years. He was a good father. He just um, wasn't really all that present. They were always constantly, he and my mother, fighting with each other and, and dealing with their own stuff, putting me in the middle of it very often. But my father had some really good customers that were really important to me growing up. My father was a very well-known Corvette restoration guy, and he restored the old original body style. The 53 to 62 Corvettes was his specialty. And so I grew up with these cars and with mechanics and with all this stuff all around me. And as a child, that's what I thought a man was, was a mechanic. A man fixed things. A man was capable of using tools and building things. And that's a theme that's carried on in my entire life. But I was also given a lot of very flawed and very detrimental perspectives as to what a man should be. As you know, my my mother was very um, passive-aggressive. My mother's love was very reward-based, and I genuinely believe that she had a major issue with men in general. She had some really severe childhood trauma that created abandonment issues, fear, and anxiety within her. She married my father at an extremely young age. And so she really didn't get herself. She didn't really have a father the full time. And so she really had some flawed father figures as well and ideas as to what it meant to be a man. But I can remember my mother telling me that I ruined her life because I was a man. But before that, my job as the boy in the family, the only active participant most of the time in our family, being male anyway, was to try to buffer, was to try to fix things, was to try to make people feel better. It dawns on me now, behaviors of people all come from some kind of need that's not been met. 
And as a child, my need for attention, my need for comfort and for inclusion and to feel worthy, those needs weren't met. And so I spent the rest of my life trying to make up for that and not even realizing that I was doing it. I had needs that had not been met. And so my behaviors, the things that I did, very often weren't healthy. They were dark at times. Many times in my life, I found myself in very deep, dark places of despair, trying to live up to this standard of what a man is. But my father, as I said, had some really good customers, and one customer in particular was always really nice to me. He was a former Vietnam veteran, and he was a door gunner in the Army on a Huey helicopter. And he was a really nice guy. He had a 58 Corvette. He would bring a red and white cooler of RC Cola every time he came over to watch my dad work or to help my dad work. And we would sit in the driveway and he would share his RC Colas with me. And just the idea of him bringing extra and making sure that I had one and taking the time to sit there and talk to me while my father worked was really meaningful to me. It was something that I needed personally at the time. And I was so desperate for. My desperation for attention with other people, with predators, turned into me being sexually abused and me being emotionally abused. It was nice to have someone that all he wanted to do was share an RC Cola and talk. And we talked about lots of things. We talked about bike riding because he used to ride a bike when he was a kid. But what impressed me the most was he would share stories about his time in Vietnam and how, in general, he thought that the country was beautiful and the people there were open and friendly. And obviously, if they were the enemy, then they weren't being quite so friendly. But he would tell me how excited he was to be able to be in charge of his position on the helicopter, which was to keep the helicopter safe. And that their mission was to fly men into combat, but more importantly, to fly them out. And so when these grunts on the ground got in trouble or they were injured or sometimes killed, it was the job of these helicopter crews to fly in and fly these men to safety. And so that meant he was responsible for creating some of that safety. And as you can imagine, that was a very violent act. But it was also a really heroic act. And it's, it's crazy that as humans, heroism and violence often goes one in one, but men in general from a very early age are raised to wage war. We're given toys that are military. We're given toy guns, even Nerf guns. And we're taught to shoot and to ambush and to be loud and to be brave and to blaze in with guns firing. But that's what this man did at a very young age, 19, 20 years old. He would man a 50 caliber M60 on the side of a helicopter, and he would be a very important key factor in rescuing men on the ground that truly needed it. And he would tell me how he oftentimes would carry chocolate bars. He'd give them to the grunts when they got on the airplane, and that, uh, you know, sometimes after being in a situation like that a candy bar was something that they all really appreciated and they had an easy supply of apparently at his base and some of the grunts on the ground didn't and so they would look to him for cigarettes and candy but he taught me a lot about chivalry and about bravery and his stories seemed like something out of medieval time 
knights in shining armor rushing into the face of battle to to save people from from death and destruction we had a neighbor down the street from us that um, was also a vietnam veteran he was a marine corps vet and he was a very good man and he was a the father of a friend and one day we were standing in the front yard i believe i had just gotten home from school in my my big bright red jeep and I looked down the street, and I saw fire at the very edge of the field. There was a horse pasture at the end of our street. This fire quickly stood up and began running down the street. And within seconds, I saw a man rush from his garage at full speed and grab this small person, wrestle her to the ground, and using his own body, put the fire out. He did it without the slightest hesitation. He did it without thought for his own well-being. But he immediately picked this girl up and, and carried her down the street to her house. And I, I met him about halfway and, and realized it was my neighbor from across the street. And she was a, a young girl. She had been in a bathing suit with a couple of boys her age. And they were trying to make torches. They were pouring the gasoline as she sat on the ground on her torch. And of course, when they lit it, the fuel being on her body as well caught her on fire and her instinct was to stand up and run. But had he not acted so instantaneously, had he not been willing to sacrifice himself, this girl likely could have died. And for sure, her burns would have been much worse than they were. And as it was, they were bad enough. She ended up having to get skin grafts, and, and it was a, a very rough day, something that was very painful to witness. But a year or so later, I was graduating high school soon, and as a child, I always wanted to be a fighter pilot. As a boy, I growing up, I was around a lot of fighter pilots. My dad knew people that had flown in, in World War II, even, and they became friends to me, and... I had been flying since I was about 12. I worked for my father in the garage, and he would pay me, and we would go out to Rich's Gebauer, and I would fly Cessnas. I would sit on phone books. I was so young to be able to see over the instrument panel. But I was standing in my front yard, and a Marine Corps recruiter had come by. It turns out I had taken the ACTs, and I had scored a 31. And... My school had kind of gone downhill at the time, and I didn't even realize that a 31 was a good score. We didn't have counselors that spent much time with us. Most of the time, they were trying to deal with drugs and guns and stuff at our school. I was talking to the Marine Corps, and they were very excited. And this recruiter had told me that I was so smart, and my scores were so great, and my ASVAB scores were so wonderful that within a few months of being enlisted, I would likely be pulled from there and sent to become commissioned and then to flight training, which was my ultimate goal. So not realizing that none of that is true, I was very excited. This man came to my house to meet my parents, and he basically told them the same thing, and neither one of them really had the knowledge to know different. But this Marine Corps veteran friend and neighbor drove by as this man was getting into his car, and he was intrigued. So he pulled over, and he stopped, and he asked me what was going on. He asked me um, if I was thinking about joining the Marine Corps. 
And so I very excitedly thinking this was a good bonding moment and attention that I didn't realize that I needed, but looking back, obviously. I explained to him the story and how I was going to fly and how you know I wanted to fly Harriers and, and how in a few years I'd be doing that. And so he asked if I'd go grab a, a snack with him. And we jumped in his car and we drove to Wendy's and he bought me a Frosty and he bought me a Fry and he asked me to tell him the story about what was going on. And so I did. And he quietly sat there and listened, and he would nod his head a little bit, and he had had me bring a notepad. And he asked me, he's like, well, do you know what it takes to be a pilot in the military? And at the time, like I said, I was really excited because I was already a pilot, and I already knew all these things. And, you know, back in the day of World War One, World War Two, being a pilot was something that the military in general would have been excited about, and it would have very often meant that you got to go fly. But in modern times, that's not the case at all, and in quite the contrary, they almost wanted you to not have flying experience so that they could start from ground zero. But we sat there, and he had me write down some simple questions. And the first one was, what does it take to actually be a pilot in the Marine Corps? The second question was, can I enlist and become a pilot in the Marine Corps? What is required for me if I do that? Do I have to be an officer to fly? And what's required to be an officer? And so he drove me home and, and told me to please go and talk to the recruiter and ask him these questions. And so a day or so later, I uh, was talking to the Marine Corps recruiter. And oddly enough, the conversation went to my enlistment situation and, and what was going to happen. I was supposed to go to a hotel down by Union Station in downtown Kansas City. The recruiter was going to drive me, and he was very excited to tell me that I had a choice to make. And the choice was, which prostitute did I want to stay with me in the hotel that night? I had choices of three different women he described in detail to me that uh, were excited to be with me, which of course I'm sure they weren't. But back in the day, being a young teenage boy, I was very excited about the idea. I had watched movies on Vietnam, and I had, had felt like that was almost a rite of passage. At the same time, I had the feeling that it was kind of wrong, too. I, I didn't like the idea, but at the same time, to me, being a man meant enlisting in the military. It meant doing what I was told, but it was meant impressing these other men. And one of the ways that I felt that I would impress them was by being with this woman that they were hiring to stay the night with me. But we got so busy talking that I almost forgot to ask the questions that my neighbor had asked me to ask. And as I was leaving, the recruiter himself actually asked me, do you have any questions? And I don't think he knew what he was bargaining for when he asked me that question because I, I pulled the note from my pocket and I told him that I had some questions that I had written them down. And he held his hand out and he, he took the paper from me and I, I asked him the first question. I said, you know, what does it take to be a pilot in the military? And can I do that by enlisting? 
and he got very frustrated. We were having a conversation that was all laughs, and it was very locker room-like. There was a lot of machismo, I guess you would call it. We were talking about having sex, and we were talking about being in the military and going to basic training and kicking ass and doing all these things. And now all of a sudden I had the nerve to ask a question. He asked me, he, he said, I thought we were cool. Why do you got to start asking questions now? I thought we knew what was going on and we were cool. And I told him that I was just curious that I really want to fly and that I hadn't really ever asked those questions before. And so he very briefly told me that to fly I had to be an officer, but that with my talents I wouldn't take me long to become an officer. And I had remembered again what my neighbor had said, and he told me to ask that question, what does it take to become an officer? And he told me, he says, well, you have to have a college degree, but we'll pay for that, and that's no big deal. And that's when I asked him, well, aren't college degrees four years? You know, I have all this other stuff going on. Am I going to be able to do that? And so he got quite upset with me, and, and I ended up leaving without asking any more questions because I, I felt like I had done the wrong thing, and I had angered this man that I had very previously respected so highly. And I drove myself home, and, and eventually I uh, found my neighbor, and he asked me how things went, and did I ask these questions, and I explained to him what had happened. And he told me that, um, yeah, he didn't feel like the recruiter was being honest with me, and he knew that um, what I was being told wasn't particularly true, and that he was proud of me for asking these questions. And he told me that I had a decision to make. Was I going to go ahead and enlist in the Marine Corps, having been lied to, having been misrepresented, or was I going to do something else? And the truth was, at that moment, I hadn't even considered anything else. I, I was still so set on being a man and doing the right thing and doing what I said I was going to do that joining the Marine Corps was still, even after all of this false pretenses, I, it still had never dawned on me. But long story short, I, I did not join the Marine Corps. I ended up going into the Air Force Reserves Officer Training Corps and went to school and uh, eventually decided against going into the Air Force. Um, I had some uh, issues with my running thanks to my boat accident in, in junior high and having never really tried to do anything before that. Um, that was obviously a problem for me. But mostly it was that I didn't feel like dropping bombs on people and, and killing people. In this modern world, we uh, very often, for political reasons, go and, and attack someone. But the thing that impressed me the most about my neighbor was that he never spoke badly about anyone. He never accused the recruiter of, of being dishonest. He never said anything directly about it, just that he didn't think that I had the whole truth. And that, that always has stuck with me, the idea that you can do the right thing and you can inflict change, positive change, man, by that same note, sometimes negative change. But you can infect change or effect change by being honest yourself, by asking questions and by having the balls to stand before someone that you respect and ask questions. And so I learned a lot from both of those men. And then, honestly, there was many more.
But here recently I've been experiencing a lot of things and I've started this podcast and I've talked about things on this podcast that I've never talked about really with much of anybody. And it's become very public and I've seen the views and listens of these podcasts across different outlets, Spotify and Apple and Google and and now I'm at thousands of people have heard my story and I get almost daily messages from people telling me thank you for telling my story that though they don't feel comfortable telling theirs, me telling mine helps them. Me admitting as a man, and oddly enough, a lot of these comments have come from women, but that me as a man being willing to stand up and say, I was molested, I was sexually abused, I was threatened, I was made to do things that I shouldn't have been made to do. And being willing to come forward and admit those things and to share, even though doing so so often has made me feel like I'm not manly, has very literally taught me that the very act of being honest with myself is the core of what is manly. It's a core of humanity. This episode is about manliness, but the honest truth is it's about being human. And one thing we fail to think about so often and we're always so shocked by is how the strong people of the world, the people that have everything going for them, I have a lot of people that follow me because of my abilities with cake because I've been on over 16 TV shows, because I have Guinness World Records. I own houses and cars, and I, I travel, and I do all these really cool things, and I appear strong. I appear to have all my shit together. I appear to be manly. It's so important to understand that we're all in this together. We all have our shit. We all have our insecurities. We all have our problems, our doubts, our feelings of unworthiness. There's been so many times of my life when the outside world looking in would have thought, oh my God, Mike's got everything going for him. And it was one of the darkest moments of my life. Moments when you start to wonder if it's worth even being here. It is worth being here. It's always worth being here. No matter how dark your thoughts get, no matter how much you feel unworthy, no matter how much you may feel alone in your feelings, you are not alone. And so I've seen that a lot here lately with a few other men that I follow online and a few people that I know. I follow a a rapper, actually that I've met a few times, and he is a very loud voice for mental health awareness, and he has his own mental issues, and and he battles them daily. And he had a photo on Instagram of himself and his very beautiful wife in a bikini at the pool. His wife was in the bikini, he was not. (laughs) But he had the appearance of being an extremely tough guy. He's very physically fit. He has a Spartan-like beard. He had a very stern kind of look on his face. And his wife was looking very beautiful. And one would look at that photo and think, wow, this is a tough guy that's got it all. 
And someone in the comments actually commented that, wow, this he's scary. I'd be afraid to, to be alone with that guy. And so King Iso actually wrote back. He responded to this comment, and he says, look, he says, I'm the nicest guy you ever want to meet. If you ever see me on the street or at a concert, please come up and say hey. And it really got me to thinking. It was very brave of him to, to say that because though he looked strong, he was willing to be weak. He was willing to show his softer side and communicate the fact that, you know what, it's okay that I look like this and it's okay that I am all these things that he is. But he's also willing to be weak and to be honest with his communication. And to me, being a man, being a human in general, to all of it is communication. We all have a need to connect. We all have a need, no matter who we are, to not be alone. Human beings are not designed to be alone. And that doesn't mean you have to be in a relationship because you don't, but you do have to be with people that you love. Most people's behavior, especially your negative behaviors, come from unmet needs. Those needs, and I'm not blaming, but those needs were very instrumental to mistakes that I would make later in my life. I couldn't identify the cause. I I didn't take the time to do the self-work. And I think that's something else that's very important as a human being and as a man is to be willing to always be working on yourself. I, in search of love and acceptance and feeling worthy, found myself chasing sex, chasing relationships, pouring myself into trying to fix other people. Every relationship that I had was about making the person I was with better. There was a few friendships that were that way, that this person needed to be lifted, and it was my job to try to do that, to elevate them in every aspect that I could. And in relationships, it was important for me to make the woman I was with feel attractive, feel loved, feel worthy. And that works for a while, but when it's the sole focus of your life, eventually it also leads to resentment. It leads to exhaustion. You can't constantly be giving people your energy. As my friend says so often, energy is energy. And the only thing that you really truly have always on this planet, as long as you are alive, is your energy is your time. And so as a man, as a human, you have to make choices as to who you give that energy to and how. There are so many people that um, will take advantage of that, that will expect you to continue to invest time and energy in them, even when you don't get the things that you need back. And so maybe if you stop showing up, they won't look for you. Maybe if you stop texting and, and doing all the things that they require and writing messages or, or whatever the situation be, maybe they will lose interest in you too, and that's a fear. And that's a very rational fear. It's a fear that you will lose connection, that you will be left alone, 
And sometimes you have to lose people that you don't want to. But the truth is that doesn't mean you are responsible for ruining the relationship. It means you created a situation within that relationship that wasn't sustainable. And I've certainly been guilty of that. But one thing I know is that human beings, myself, deserve better than that. We all do. But I've come to realize that oftentimes life makes you weak so that you can become stronger. And I choose to believe this. I don't know if that's really a fact of life or not. There's things that I genuinely believe are facts of life, our human need to connect. That's the basis for facts of life, in my opinion. But I do believe that um, the things that happened to me, the things that occurred to me as a child, even the sexual abuse, the failed relationships and trying so hard and investing so much of my time and energy into a relationship that maybe wasn't the right choice at the time. And, and I knew it, but I thought that if I invested more time and more energy into that relationship that I could fix it. But all behavior comes from unmet needs. And my needs as a child were for that connection and I didn't get to form healthy connections like I wanted. I never felt fulfilled. And not even realizing that, I went traipsing off into the world on my own, forming relationships with women and with friends, male friends and female friends, longing for a connection and to make up for things that happened to me in my childhood that I hadn't even dealt with. And so it seems to me that a real man, a real human, puts in the self-work to find the source of that trauma, to find the reasons why you do the things you do. And I've learned a lot about this lately, and I keep going back to this behaviors from unmet needs. And I've seen people, and I know people that have been addicted to drugs or alcohol or pornography or video games or smoking, or whatever the situation is. An addiction is a severe need for something that isn't necessarily healthy for you, that's difficult for you to quit, but provides joy. And so alcohol and drugs, and for me, relationships and sex, became the thing that filled that void for me, even if only temporarily. It didn't do so in a healthy way, because sex is still just sex. And without a healthy relationship, without open communication and trust and boundaries, you don't really have anything but the sex. The very connections that you long for so deeply that you missed as a child are missing. But to me, it's very important to, um, to do the self-work, to look at yourself, to look at the relationships that you have, to believe wholeheartedly because it is true that there are people out there to help you. So much of my life I kept things secret. I kept things to myself. I never asked anyone for help. Not even on normal things. I built a house mostly by myself. Sure I had friends that came and helped but primarily I would not ask anyone for help. I thought that I wasn't manly if I did that. I was embarrassed by my needs and so I found other ways to fill those needs and other ways to supply happiness. And they left me feeling hollow and empty. 
but the last few years of my life have been the most formative, I think, of who I am now. And I've learned that there's only so much you can do for people and that it is each one of ours responsibility to help ourselves first. And we cannot lean on someone else to do it. We can absolutely lean on someone and you should. You should ask for help. You should talk and you should find someone that can listen. I actually saw a show the other day and this person wrote notes on a piece of paper about what they needed and what they wanted and how they were feeling. And they threw it into what they called a God basket. And I'm not much for religion and not much of a believer in that sort of thing, but I do believe that there is a higher power that, for one reason or another, guides our life. And it may be random. It may be set in motion and then left But I do believe that there's a reason for things, and I believe I was made weak so often so that I could be stronger. I believe that the relationships I formed with women and the relationships I've been in, I genuinely did love every single person I've ever been with. But there was always something wrong with each relationship. No one's ever fault-free. But I believe that those things happened so that I could grow stronger and that I could finally someday be comfortable within myself. And here I sit today speaking about childhood trauma and my emotional needs and my feelings of unworthiness and the darkness that has taken me over at times. But it's most important to be honest with yourself because without honesty to yourself, you cannot be honest with anyone else. I formed relationships with women trying to make up for things that happened to me when I was a child, not capable of even explaining to them my emotional needs. I felt it more important to be strong. I felt it more important to be manly. I felt that had I confessed these things that had happened to me, that they would deem me less desirable. And the truth is, had they done that, then that's clearly not a person I should have been with anyway. Because what we tolerate in our presence becomes our standard and allowing that situation to be relationship after relationship is no one's fault but my own. There's never been a person that I've been in a relationship with that told me she didn't want to hear what I had to say. Them having never heard it, me having never shared it, is no one's fault but my own. And so I leave you with these final thoughts about being a man and a reminder that unhealed trauma becomes behaviors that you don't want these days. It comes in the form of addiction, of superstition, of suspicion, jealousy, fear of abandonment, and feelings of unworthiness, shame, and guilt. Only by being truly honest with ourselves can we begin to fight those demons and those past traumas. They never go away all the way. But we can choose to fight. We can choose to transcend those emotions and those feelings and those lost needs. Tomorrow is always a new day and there is always someone here for you, whether you see it or not. For much of my life, I have put on the mask and faked my strength and security. I have been afraid to admit to anyone that I felt weak sad, alone, and unworthy. I have allowed my boundaries to be crossed, destroyed, 
deleted entirely by some people, all because I felt it my job to make them happy and to please them, even if it destroyed me. I'm Mike Elder. This is the Black Sheep Rising Podcast.